Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. While we still need more research on which drugs are the most effective in treating COVID-19, a recent study looking at records from the VA shows that there's no overall benefit from using hydroxychloroquine. It was actually linked to more deaths in patients that were treated with it alone than in combination with the antibiotic azithromycin. For more on why hydroxychloroquine might not be the most effective treatment for coronavirus, we'll speak to Chris Rowland, Business of Healthcare Reporter at The Washington Post. So this is a study that basically bolsters the deep uncertainty there is around use of hydroxychloroquine and in combination with azithromycin as well, an antibiotic, in terms of both efficacy and safety. There's only been some very small studies, and this was actually one of the first that had a fairly large number of patients. And what they did was they, VA and academic researchers at the University of Virginia and the University of South Carolina, took a look at patient records looking back. So it's called a retrospective study. And they looked at the records of patients at the VA who had been treated for coronavirus, and they selected out a bunch that had been treated with hydroxychloroquine, a bunch that had been treated with the combination of hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin. And then the third arm was patients who received neither of those drugs. And what they found was that in the hydroxychloroquine alone arm, there was like around a 27 or 28% death rate of coronavirus patients compared to the ones that had none of the drug and their death rate was around 11%. So the death rate was higher for the hydroxychloroquine treated group. They also found that when it came to ventilation, there was really no meaningful difference between the arms. So this antimalarial did basically nothing in terms of keeping people off ventilators. It was somewhat disappointing. I mean, these drugs have been used widely and again, no one knows whether they're safe and effective. And here we have evidence that they're not. And it's tough. We're speeding through the process on a lot of different levels here because the pandemic hits so hard and so quick. So that's why the president had been touting it and he's saying, hey, people are having some success with it. Go for it. But we didn't have the studies done to really tell us what was going on. That's why Dr. Anthony Fauci from the task force said, I can't endorse that thing just yet. One interesting part of this study They looked at all males, which is we've heard that COVID-19 hits males particularly hard. I don't know if there was anything to that is just all of the people that were in this were male. This is not peer reviewed. It's not a randomized placebo controlled clinical trial. So it's a little different from a full, full on study. It's kind of a quick and dirty way to try to scoop up some data and see what the effects are, because you just go into the computer systems at your disposal on an anonymous basis, uh, a bunch of patient records. The reason it was all men, by the way, is it's a VA where I guess the VA population in general is mostly male. There were a small number of women in their first pass and they just left all the women out because it was so small. And so indeed, it's not compared to a placebo, which is like a dummy drug, which is really the gold standard of trying to figure out whether a drug works because you can compare. Again, in this one, you don't know in any of these arms exactly how many of those patients would have gotten better with or without the drug. So it's very difficult. It makes the comparison pretty murky. But again, it shows that 
The reason these drugs have been used is because there is no treatment approved for coronavirus. These drugs are on the market for malaria and also for uh, lupus and uh, rheumatoid arthritis, and they were readily available. So people just started trying them based on some belief that their anti-inflammatory effects would have benefit. Yeah, And it's turning out that they may not. So I wanted to talk a little bit more about hydroxychloroquine. As you mentioned earlier, I mean, all this points to just the uncertainty of this. The study cautioned that we shouldn't be using this so widespread until we know more about it. But there are some known side effects for using hydroxychloroquine, some cardiac death. There was a French study, a Brazilian study that both had problems with patients developing heart problems. And I guess there's something called QT prolongation, which kind of mm -hmm. affects the timing of the heart. So these are mm -hmm. some of the things that have been popping up with the use of this. The side effects of hydroxychloroquine are well known. And alarmingly, azithromycin, which is the antibiotic that's been used in combination, also has the same side effect of extending the period between your heart recharging. And if your heart is recharging more than half a second, if it takes more than half a second to recharge each time before it beats, you're in a position where you could have a dangerous arrhythmia, which could lead to sudden cardiac death. It's a very serious, obviously dangerous side effect that pops up in about 1% of patients who take this drug. And it's manageable when you're dealing with a small number of patients who take it, but when potentially hundreds of thousands of people are starting to take it or a million, then you're going to have, you know, as many as 10,000 people suffering serious cardiac events and possibly dying. And that's why, you know, the president came under a fair amount of criticism for pushing these drugs so aggressively when there is this clear side effect and the efficacy is really unknown against coronavirus. We still need to know a lot more about the virus itself and these drugs, but it just seems in the meantime, like, you know, we talk a lot about underlying health conditions. It seems like people that have heart conditions maybe shouldn't be taking this. We still need more studies on it. But if these are some of the problems that can develop, it seems like it might not be the way to go. But we'll have to keep seeing what else can be done with it. Christopher Rowland, Business of Healthcare reporter for The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Another big story that happened early this week, for the first time ever in trading, U.S. oil prices dipped into negative territory on Monday. Companies had to pay to get rid of oversupply of oil. But this doesn't mean that you'll get paid to take gasoline off someone's hands. We might see some modest savings in the next few days and weeks, but the big question remains what to do with all the extra oil. The administration is planning to add millions of barrels to the nation's reserve. For more on how the coronavirus pandemic is impacting the oil industry, We'll speak to Amy Harder, energy reporter at Axios. This is really an unprecedented time for all of us, of course, but especially the oil industry, because if you think about it, the solution to solving the virus is to get us to stop moving around. And yet the whole purpose of oil is to move us around. And so what happened with these prices going negative on Monday, and we expect to see it in the coming weeks continuing, is that there's too much supply of oil and not enough demand. So literally companies are having to pay people to take their oil and it's really unprecedented and we don't really know where the bottom is yet. Now, I wanted to focus on that for a moment because people hear that, that companies are having to pay others to get rid of their oil. And right away people think, oh man, well, gas prices are gonna drop tremendously. Are they going to pay us to take away the gas? It's not really the way it works. 
but we could see some gas prices easing, but maybe not for a couple of weeks. That was one of the first stories that I've written about negative prices because obviously the oil industry and people who work in that sector are very concerned about the negative prices. But for most people, what we care about is gasoline prices. Exactly. And frankly, the lower the better. But I quickly confirmed with experts that even though, yes, prices have gone negative in the global oil market, no, we will never get paid to fill up our gas tank. <laughs> and that's for a lot of reasons. But one main one is that there's a lot of other costs that go into a cost of gasoline that will offset the negative cost. Global oil prices make up a little bit more than 50% of a gallon of gasoline. But then there's the refinement costs, the transportation, and then finally state taxes. But that said, states across the country are still seeing prices at the gas tank plummet. Some are seeing, I think Wisconsin and Kentucky are two examples where drivers, a few of those on the road anyway, are seeing prices below a dollar. Wow, that's amazing. I live in California, so... I don't think we'll ever see those prices again, but still things have gotten a little bit better. The immediate effect of these negative territory prices, you might be able to see something in a few days or so, but really not much to look forward to there. The other thing we're seeing too is kind of this ebb and flow of these gas prices. As soon as we get out of this, we could be in for some very high oil prices. That's typically how these cycles work. I mean, the oil industry is no stranger to booms and busts. So the industry has been in a relative boom over the last year. The United States is now the biggest producer of oil and natural gas. And so they've been booming for a while and now they're busting. And this is a record bust. So at least the way typical economics work is that we are going to be seeing extremely higher prices, not next month, not even this summer. This summer, we'll see lower gasoline prices still, hopefully, if we're able to be driving around. But this price spike could come in the middle of this decade. And so in 2025, when hopefully the global economy is doing well, we'll see higher prices and we can thank the pandemic for that. Let's talk a little bit more about what's going on right now. So my understanding is that these prices have gone so low because for the most part, people that have bought all of their oil for the month of May, because we're always trying to project, there's always a future thing happening here. Most people have already bought all the oil they're buying for the month of May. So that's why it's so low. So we're looking ahead to the following month to see where prices are going to be at then. So if you want to get technical about it, that's what technically drove prices into the negative territory. Yesterday on Monday, it was really the end of a trading window for the month of May. I liken it to sort of the game of musical chairs and the music stopped and some of the oil barrels didn't have a place to sit down. And that's what prompted the prices to go negative. We're into a new month, though, and the music is back up, but prices are still really low. So as the month wears on, you can anticipate that we'll go into negative territory again. I should emphasize that we're talking about U.S.-based futures or futures contracts, so right. WTI versus Brent, which is based in Europe. And what do we do with all of this extra oil that we have right now? I know the Trump administration said they want to add about 75 million barrels to the nation's reserves. But beyond that, what do we do with this extra supply that we have? I mean, that is the million dollar question. There's just no place to put it. There's been dozens and dozens of ships added to the seas full of oil just sitting out there in the ocean. You know, it's a little ironic that this is happening Yesterday was the 10-year anniversary of the BP oil spill. 
So it's a little ironic there that oil is on the water in another way. Yeah, not (laughs) even on my radar. And I remember all the coverage of that. I mean, it was just huge how much we were losing at that point. Right. So this is a very different way and at least an environmentally better way to have oil on the water. But, you know, this is a big question. And Trump has said, oh, we have a lot of places to put the oil. But, you know, we really don't. And I think that's one of the biggest questions that this administration is really grappling with right now. I I mean, just the numbers are staggering. So, yeah, maybe another 75 million barrels into the nation's strategic reserves. But, you know, the world usually consumes about 100 million barrels a day. And right now, oil is off at least 20 million barrels a day. So that's 20 million barrels a day of excess oil that has nowhere to go. And that's a day. So, I mean, the numbers are just staggering. And so... It's just, you know, a recent column of mine said the world is locked down and drowning in oil. There's no place to put it. So ultimately, the end effect will be companies will just have to stop drilling. And beyond that, will we see any bailouts or any type of financial help coming to the oil industry? I know there's just been kind of rumblings of conversation so far about that from the administration and so forth. But is that also something we might see on the horizon? I certainly think the the more dire the situation gets, the lower the prices go, the more likely something will come out of Washington on this. President Trump tweeted about that today on Tuesday, saying that he's directing the Energy Department and the Treasury Department to come up with a plan to help the industry. I think Congress, with the House controlled by Democrats, the only way Democrats will take what they'll call a bailout for the oil industry is if they get something for renewable energy companies, for example. So I anticipate some sort of pairing of an oil support package along with support for the renewable energy industry, which, by the way, is also struggling because everybody, all of us are struggling. Exactly. Except for maybe Zoom and and pizza joints. (laughs) Well, we'll have to definitely monitor and see what happens. Amy Harder, energy reporter at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me on. Also this week, some important immigration news. After a few days of confusion, President Trump signed a proclamation suspending immigration for the next 60 days, and this could be extended. While the president made it seem like it would block many from coming in, the order includes broad exemptions for several categories of foreign workers and employers. For more on who this proclamation would affect, we speak to Molly O'Toole, immigration and security reporter at the LA Times. Originally on Monday night, Trump sparked a lot of confusions that his own aides scrambling at Homeland Security and elsewhere when he said he was going to issue an executive order to temporarily suspend immigration into the United States. So that sounds pretty sweeping. It sounds pretty broad. It sounds like a more or less like a complete shutdown for immigration in the U.S. And we know the administration, that's a long held goal of theirs, the stated goal of theirs. The president campaigned on it. So it set people scrambling. And then on Tuesday, the president said when he described the order that was coming, he said, oh, it's going to be restricting legal permanent residents, which most people know as green cards. Set people scrambling again because was it going to apply to people already inside the United States, only outside the United States? How is this going to work? It would still be impacting a lot of people. It's over a million green cards, for example, legal permanent residency that was obtained in fiscal 2019. But in the end, on Wednesday, just yesterday, it feels like 10 years, the president issued a proclamation, not an executive order, and there is a legal distinction there. And rather than the sweeping suspension of all immigration that he seems to describe, it actually only restricts entry 
to the United States for 60 days. And for people seeking green cards from out the United States, if they are not the children under the age of 21 or spouses of U.S. citizens in the United States. And there are all sorts of other carve-outs, which I can get into, but broadly, it excludes large categories of foreign workers or even foreign employers, such as investors, along with their spouses and children under the age of 21, who really make up the largest number of people who would be coming into work. And that was the motivation that was described by the White House. The reasoning for this proclamation was to essentially eliminate competition for Americans who've lost their jobs or who are out of work because of the economic shutdown intended to help staunch the spread of coronavirus. So there are really big carve-outs is the long and short of it to this proclamation. He's made no bones about it. He said specifically this is about jobs. We don't want immigrants getting these jobs ahead of Americans when the economy starts reopening again. But you can see it right in the order, you know, right away, farm workers, these guest workers, things like that, that are vital to the country reopening. He gave this to the business leaders, basically, who rely on these people to come in and work for them. So, yes, as you mentioned at the very beginning, very confusing time. It sounds like all immigration is going to be shut down, but then you drill into it once they finally put it all together. That's not really what happened. All these temporary foreign workers, everything that are vital to us, those people are still going to be allowed to come in. I should note, it's not as if this does nothing. It just doesn't do what they said it would do, how they presented it. And the fact that the Trump 2020 campaign sent out information about this order before any other part of the administration did, and we had gotten any information from Homeland Security of the White House, really speaks volumes. But to some extent, this was about messaging. But some expert analysts suggest that if this were to stay in place, for a year, for example, we don't know that that's the case right now. It's 60 days, although there are indications it could last much longer. It would block about 350,000 people. The administration itself has acknowledged that with all sorts of travel restrictions from all around the world and many of the agencies of the federal government, the U.S. government that would be processing these visas, the State Department, USCIS, many of those services are shut down. They acknowledge they don't even know how many people this would potentially block because basically no one is really trying to come right now anyway. But the administration estimated that, you know, it could be maybe 400,000 people. It creates a lot of angst for families, U.S. citizens and legal permanent residents in the United States that were trying to reunite with, oh, I don't know, say their 22 year old child and not their 21 year old child, their parents. It certainly does have a broad impact. But it definitely does not do what they initially said it would do. And it's really difficult to follow the logic of how this would actually help American workers when many of the foreign worker categories are not included in this. And the employment-based green cards, actually, they have to prove as part of that process that they essentially have to do a labor market check that shows that they're not taking a job from a qualified U.S. national anyway. So it's unclear what the economic impact of this actually would be, how in the short term, especially in the next 60 days how it would help American workers. Molly O'Toole, immigration and security reporter at the LA Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.